Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for calling us to this place. And as we talk about grace and uh, what it does to enable us or doesn't do to enable us, we pray that you would come and fill our conversation, that we might take something away uh, that makes us fall more in love with you and engenders in us a compassion uh, for others, especially those who are very close to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, this is um, a topic if, you know, you always want to title your Sunday school classes in a way that, um, that says what you're going to talk about, and, um, but you also want it to be kind of catchy. And is Jack Sharman in here? Jack Sharman does a really good job. Remember the last one? It was something about the 39 articles and nanobots burning the trailer park down. So, like, I don't know what that's about, but I want to go to it. Um, uh, but so but there's really nothing catchy about the title except uh, the idea of grace and whether or not it actually... And Holes, y'all can sit at this couch right here. You actually can't, y'all. See? I knew y'all would. All right. I knew y'all would. All right. That's called people under grace and not under the law. They feel okay doing that. But... Um, the whole idea of grace in this gospel message and when the gospel message first takes root in your heart, that is that you really, for the first time in your life, understand what it means that Jesus Christ died for you, that while you were yet a sinner, uh, Christ died uh, for the ungodly. And when we first become Christians, we hear that message and we say, oh, that's really wonderful. But then we begin to live our lives more often than not in a way that doesn't reflect that. Uh, we think, okay, Jesus has died for me and now he's done his part and now it's time to do my part. And of course, the biblical message is that's not how it works. Uh, Jesus does it all. Not just justifying you, which is the initial act of you are justified uh, before God because of what Jesus has done for you, but it's also God that does the sanctifying. It's also God that does the sanctifying because if it's... if Sanctification is the whole idea of you uh, growing in, in holiness, uh, but whose holiness is it? It's God's, right? It's not yours. So the only way that you can get it is if God gets, gives it to you. And what you'll find as you live the Christian life is things aren't working out exactly how you thought they would work out. You know, you don't actually find yourself necessarily getting better from your perspective. Uh, you find yourself, in fact, struggling more than you ever have. Those things that didn't bother you when, a pagan, when you were a pagan, now all of a sudden really do bother you, and you uh, cry out like St. Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death? Because the very thing that you want to do, uh, you find yourself incapable of doing, and the very thing you don't want to do, you find yourself doing constantly. And that's not just true with God, but it's true of of the way things work in our own human relationships. And there comes a point in everybody's life, Paul Zoll used to say that if you're going to have your life crisis, get it over sooner rather than later. It's supposed to have it soon. And, um, and there's normally a point in all of our lives where this comes home to roost, where you find yourself at your rope's end and you really are challenged in your faith, and you think, I don't find myself improving. I know that Jesus loves me, but there's a part of me that still feels like I have to do something. But I find myself powerless in dealing with the situation at hand. Now, sometimes that's a personal crisis of your own. Uh, something has happened, and no matter what you do, you can't get yourself out of it, out of it and you have to deal with it. It's there. And 
the only recourse that you have is to cry out to Jesus. Like Peter walking on the water and he begins to sink beneath the waves, your only prayer is, save me, Lord. That's it. But sometimes it is a crisis that is precipitated by somebody else. Um, You find yourself dealing with someone who's very close to you, a spouse, a parent, a child, uh, uh, someone else whom you love very much, and you find that no matter how hard you try, your efforts are not making things right in their life. Uh, you have a child who, uh, who is moving to Seattle. and um, or Let's just use a real example, someone who's in my family. Uh, not you, of course. Uh, but uh, we all have somebody in our family who thinks it's a really good idea to buy an old school bus and to make it into a biodiesel school bus to save fuel. The only hard thing is you have to find a Chinese restaurant every 300 miles to give you their frying grease. And, um, and to drive out to Jackson Hole and to spend your day skiing. And it sounds like a wonderful idea. The only thing is, is I need my family to give me a lot of money. Now, uh, if you're a mom or a dad in this situation, uh, what's your response? What, are you crazy? Now, this, this is the, the most harebrained idea that I've ever heard of in my life. But no matter how hard you try and as much sense as you are making in speaking to this child, they're not hearing it. And off they go in the school bus, and you start thinking about that movie. What was Into the Wild? Did you ever see that one or read that book? That's what you're thinking at night in bed of the guy who goes out into Alaska to find himself, and um, he dies. Um, and that's, that's extreme. But if you've ever been a parent, and you have a child who's gone off like that, uh, that is a real fear. Like, what is, what is my child going to do? They're, they're not safe. This is not good. I mean, if you lose your child, if you have a little one in the Walmart for two minutes, I mean, your thoughts start, you, you think the worst thing that could possibly happen has happened. Now, um, in our lives, we do run into people uh, and we have relationships with people uh, that bring on a crisis in our lives. Um, and through that, and through the working of the Holy Spirit, we come to see that the gospel is for Christians too. The gospel is not just for people who haven't heard the gospel, but the whole message of Jesus died for you is the message that Christians need to hear over and over again as well. You don't, uh, you know, as Christians, I was in college in one of those accountability groups, and uh, if you have ever been a part of an accountability group, what that really means is that it's sort of a a lying group, (laughs) Uh, because the moment that you start talking, I mean, who really wants accountability? Who wants one more person in their lives telling you what to do? Um, I do. Uh, But we would get around in this group, and we would talk about stuff, and people say, well, what can we pray for you about? And we would say, well, um, pray that I pray more. Pray that, that, uh, that I read my Bible more. Now, those are real prayers, and those are things that we really wanted to do. But if you're anything like me, there are other issues going on in my life that that's what I really need to be praying about. Uh, but I was afraid to tell these guys because I thought that if I told them that their response would be, that is profoundly unchristian. The struggle that you're dealing with, is a, you really ought, as a Christian, you ought not to be struggling in the way that you're struggling. And, uh, and even if they, they did receive it as something, okay, we hear what you're saying, they would begin to give me these sort of ten steps to getting my life back on track. And of course, if it's come to a crisis point, I've probably tried all 10 of those steps and 10 other ones. I've read every book that there is to read. I've sought counsel that there is to counsel. uh, And yet, I don't find things 
changing. But that's because it's all resting in me. It's what I'm trying to do in order to make things right. And so, as a struggling Christian, you hear the gospel message, Jesus did it all. And no matter who you are, what you're up to, God's arm is never too short to save. That there's actually nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of God. If the gospel, if God's grace is a gift to you, and a gift is something that is unearned, or you can't unearn it. Right? If you didn't earn it in the first place, you can't unearn it. But as Christians, oftentimes we think that we can. Uh, we think that we can lose it, and it's so far gone from us, but we serve a God whose property is always to have mercy. Even while we're not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under the table, his principle is to reach down to us and to save us. Now, we get to the point in our Christian lives where spiritually speaking, that begins to make sense. And it frees us. It's an incredible experience. But uh, even in uh, this acknowledgement, and we know that this is the relationship that we have with Jesus, that even though we're this weird mix of righteousness that is given to us through Jesus, and yet still sinful, like St. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, we understand that's the relationship, even though that's where God still loves us no matter what. Now that's freeing, that's amazing, and that is what changes your life. And yet you continue to struggle with the relationships around you, uh, with your spouse, uh, with your children, uh, with your siblings, uh, with your mom, your dad, with your friends. Um, And often it's because the shoe's on the other foot. And what do I mean by that? Well, I I think that, I'll just speak for myself. Spiritually speaking, I, I don't really struggle that much anymore with whether or not God loves me. And I don't struggle anymore with the acknowledgement that I'm a sinner. Right? I don't need to do a lot. It doesn't take me long to do an inventory of all of the issues that I have in life. And, and I know that in spite of those issues, uh, God loves me. And I'm okay with that. And it doesn't make me want to go out and, and sin. It actually doesn't enable me to go out and sin. If anything, what it does is it grieves my heart even more. Now I'm not, I used to be worried about the consequences of sin. That's what I used to be worried about. You know, I didn't want, you know, like politicians today that say, I'm sorry that what I did hurt you. I'm sorry that you're offended by what... Well, the Christian's not worried just about the consequences. The Christian is actually sorry over what they've done because they know that it grieves, not only grieves the heart of God, it was exactly what nailed Jesus to the cross. So even with that, that's, that's what grieves me when I begin to think about my sin and what it cost God uh, but when I begin to think about my relationships with, with other people, it gets a little more complicated. Um, I know that that's how God loves me, but that's not necessarily easy for me to love other people in that way, and it's not really um, how I want to love people. Jesus says in John chapter 13, uh, love one another as I have loved you. <clears throat> now, I've, I've already kind of laid out what that love looks like, um, and I hear that and I say, yes. But normally that's because that's how I want other people to love me. Uh, That's not necessarily how I want to love other people. And not because my heart doesn't want to love them, although that's part of it. Uh, But more uh, often than not, it's, um, uh, well, it's because of their sin. And when uh, when, when Jesus in uh, Matthew talks about 
the idea of the plank and the speck. Um, most people use that as a reason to not judge other people. Say, well, Jesus says that, that we ought to deal with the plank in our own eye before we deal with the speck in our neighbor's eye. And that's true, but the deeper meaning behind that passage is what Jesus is saying is, look, if you've ever, have you ever had a speck in your eye? I mean, it could be the smallest particle, and yet in your eye, what does it feel like? A plank. It actually feels like a plank. And so what Jesus is saying is, your neighbor's sin, which surely is agitating, it's bothersome, and your propensity is to want to fix the problem, but your sin ought to agitate you just as much as your neighbor's sin does. You ought to be aggravated and just as concerned with what you're dealing with as you are with what your neighbor is dealing with. And, of course, neighbor is just writ large for um, whoever is close to you. Um, so very few of us probably worry if we're taking advantage of God's grace. Uh, but if anything, we wish that we relied on it more. Um, however, when we start dealing with other people in human relationships, there is a real fear that other people will take advantage of the grace that we are offering them or have offered them. So we're okay with God giving us this unmeasured grace, but then when we start dealing with other people, we think, well, they might take advantage of me. They might take advantage of the grace that I'm showing them. Um, where with God in your relationship with him, uh, your own experience is that you probably are not taking advantage of the grace that God has shown you. There's a theological term for that. It's called antinomianism. It'll be on the test. Um, and antinomianism is the idea of just being a complete libertine. When Paul talks in Romans about, you know, so we, should we sin all the more that grace might abound? Certainly not. And St. Paul is not saying that necessarily as a cautionary thing, but he's saying it as a, de he's declaring it as a fact. Look, if you've experienced the grace of Jesus, you're not going to sin all the more because your heart is going to be grieved and you are going to want to be more like Jesus. And, um, that uh, is, is not an issue in your life. And this whole idea of antinomianism that, well, if I just preach the gospel or if I show somebody else grace, they're just going to go off and do whatever uh, they want to do um, is never once seen in the scriptures. Now, the people who go off and do what they want to do are people who are normally not converted in the first place and are actually completely unaware of God's law. They're just doing what they do. They're just being who they are. Uh, but those who are Christians, certainly uh, we, we do fall and we do sin. Uh, but if you're a Christian, what's the response to that? You struggle. Right? If you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't struggle. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Right? You know that God is working in your life if you're struggling. If you know that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Well, in dealing with human relationships... And showing somebody grace, which is unmerited favor, is actually loving somebody who is unlovable and loving them in their situation is something that's hard to do. And one of the reasons it's hard is that, as um, C.F. Walter said, rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. And, of course, only one person in the history of the world was able to do this perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ.
So when you're dealing with people on a day-to-day basis in human relationships and you come upon a struggle, one of the greatest difficulties is, when do I drop the hammer and when do I love them unconditionally? If we could figure it out, we could all just go home. (laughs) I would say go play golf, but um, like the holes, we could just cuddle up on the couch and take a nap. Um, uh, But... That is, that is the most difficult thing, and it's because our own sin gets in the way. But how is it that Jesus, when he encountered the rich young ruler uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, knew that, that what he had to do is to bring the law in? Remember, he said, you know, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you, well, you know, uh, what are the commandments? He lists the easier commandments to keep. And, then, uh, and he says, well, I'll tell you what, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says that he went away. Sad. Now in Luke, it actually says he loved him, and then he said, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and he went away sad. And of course, there's a part of me who has experienced the gospel who is sort of waiting for Jesus to go running after him. And like the disciples, that's what they wanted to do. The disciples were like, hey, this guy's actually got a lot of money, and he could, you know, I'm kind of over this. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Uh, it'd be nice to get at least some tents or something. Uh, you know, uh, let's go get this guy. And, um, and yet, uh, Everybody just sort of watched him walk away into the sunset. And yet he encounters the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And uh, there she is, guilty as guilty can be, thrown before him wearing only a bed sheet, caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus says what to her? Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. What? And she does. Her life has changed. The difference is, and what Jesus is able to see, because he's able to see into our hearts, is Jesus knows when we need conviction, when the hammer needs to be dropped, and he knows that there's nothing that he can say or do that is going to make us feel any worse than we already feel. What good would it have done to Jesus if he had looked at the woman in John chapter 8 and said, you know, you need to get your life back on track, Um, you need to get to maybe some sort of home that's going to help you transition and do some job training. And, um, you know, your reputation's shot, so you might want to think about moving to Caesarea Maritina uh, or, or, you know, uh, Rome could be good for you. Um, You know, know, not a day has gone by in this woman's life where she didn't think that, where she didn't think, I'm a wreck, I need to get out of this lifestyle, uh, but I don't know how. I don't know how. And she probably tried. She probably made effort. But until Jesus said what he said to her, she was not free to do it. But he enabled her in a positive way to actually go and sin no more. Not, I mean, she obviously sinned, but you know, out of the lifestyle that she was in. Whereas with the rich young ruler, what if Jesus had said, Come and enter my kingdom. You are wonderful. Bring your possessions. Bring it all and come in. What would that young man have thought? He would have thought, I'm getting in because of what? My possessions. What I bring in. So with Jesus, his relationship with Jesus would therefore be marked by this whole idea of, in order for me to maintain a relationship with Jesus and to, uh, to make him happy, I need to keep the possessions up here. I need to make sure that I'm continuing to provide for the disciples. So if Jesus had actually shown him grace in that moment, he would have enabled him in a negative sense. He would enable him in a negative sense and led him to believe a lie. 
Now, the hard thing about it is, is our propensity in dealing with human beings is to actually drop the hammer. It's actually to uh, our first reaction when somebody wrongs us is to bring the law. Uh, I mean, that's, that's my propensity, and, um, and that is uh, your propensity as a human being. Um, and more often than not, that will repel somebody in the wrong direction. The hard thing about knowing when to apply the gospel and when to apply that grace is that it's an act of the Holy Spirit. It's an act of the Holy Spirit. It's like when a mother sees her child fall down in the middle of a busy street and she rushes to pick them up and to rescue them. How much thought was put into that? None. They just did it. They just did it. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. Now, if you are in touch with your own sin, if you're fairly self-aware, which Christianity enables us to do, thank you, um, one of the things that that ought to do is it ought to engender compassion in us. If you are like St. Paul and you say that I am most men to be pitied, I am the chief of sinners, when you look at other people, that ought to engender a compassion in them because you can then say, Um, this is a fellow struggler. This is somebody who is dealing with the same stuff that I'm dealing with as in sin. It might manifest itself in a different way, but it's not like some people out there are more sinful than you and I are. Now, it is encouraging to read like Us Weekly and People Magazine because it gives that impression. It kind of, you know, you can kind of sit there and be like, I am not Kim Kardashian. Yes. You know, uh, but let me tell you, Kim has a lot more opportunity to sin than I do. And, um, and, but the same thing that infects her is the same sin that infects me. Uh, several years ago, if, I only spent a semester at Trinity Seminary, so I can say this, uh, but across the river at Trinity Seminary in Altoona, Pennsylvania, was the largest food poisoning outbreak in the history of the United States. It was botulism. And if you notice, when's the last time you saw Chi-Chi's? This put them under. Um, and uh, some Trinity students ended up getting it, and so, not at Trinity, but people did, did die. And, um, and every time I think about that, I think about the nature of food poisoning and botulism. And let's say that the Chi-Chi's, remember the real ridiculous advertising, like, give me a chimmy? So let's say that you order a chimichanga and and it comes out, and uh, you know that there's botulism in, in each of them, but they say, this one has a teaspoon of botulism in it, but this one only has just a little teeny tiny botulism in it. Uh, which one would you like? Neither of them, because they're both infected with botulism. Uh, they both have the potential to kill you. Uh, so it's not... Yeah, it's not as if uh, we can look at other people and say, that person is so much worse than I am. Uh, the issue is, is that yours and my sins are just a lot easier to hide than theirs are. Um, I would, if paparazzi followed me around, Frank would fire me. <laughs> Frank would fire Frank. Um, uh, it, it, would be, it would be awful if somebody was to follow you around with a camera all day long to catch us in uh, and, and just being human beings. But the difference is, is we don't glory in it. We don't glory in our shortcomings. We don't glory in our sin. We don't glory in this infection in our body. What we want God to do is to take it over, to overpower it, and to rid us of it. 
That's the desire of a Christian. And so when you see somebody struggling in their lives, uh, if you're in touch with yourself, it ought to make you love them. It ought to make you love them. Now, sometimes that love does manifest itself into frustration. And that's okay, because the more you love somebody and the more you've invested in their lives, the more frustrated you're going to be and the more angry you will be. If you've ever had anybody in your life who has struggled with addiction um, and you just want to go up and grab them and shake them and say, what is wrong with you? Uh, get it together. Uh, even though that's like telling a person with one leg to run faster. Uh, even though that, that's... But the reason why you're so frustrated and angry is, is because you love them so much. And you do want to see their lives changed. Now, the issue, though, is sometimes, though, in, uh, in little things. Uh, for instance, uh, when you get married, it's like a tectonic shift in your life. And those things that your roommate used to get on your case about and those things that your mom used to get on your case about, uh, you could totally blow off, right? Because you were thinking, like, you're just my roommate, I can always shut my door if my, my room is messy. Um, and, you know, frankly, I'm not going to have to live with you much longer. But when you get married, uh, you can't just shut the door. And so all of a sudden, those little things that everybody used to get on your case about and say, you know, this is a, a, a personality flaw, a, a sin that, that manifests itself in your life. Uh, when you're in close quarters with someone like marriage, um, it's like a magnifying glass on that thing. And it's not enough for us to say, well... Uh, deal with it. In fact, if you're very much in love uh, with the person you married, which I hope you are, uh, it will actually make you want to change. It will actually want to make you different. But one of the things that often happens in close relationships, uh, even with friends, is that you begin to nitpick and there are little things that other people do that annoy you. And, uh, and so even though we have big issues, I feel like that oftentimes this whole grace law uh, and can grace be enablement come into those smaller issues. Um, like my friend, husband, child, mother has this habit that drives me nuts. Um, whatever it might be. I don't want to be too specific, but whatever it might be. Um, they, um, whatever it is. Uh, I'm trying to be careful. So, uh, whatever it is. And, uh, and I just don't understand why they won't stop. I just don't, I, I've told them time and time again, how much it bothers me uh, and how much uh, it, it's really uh, bugging me. And, uh, and it's really, it's, it's all of a sudden, it's actually manifested itself in something bigger in our relationship because now it's not just an issue of they continue to do this thing, but now it's an issue of um, because they haven't stopped, I think that they're disrespecting me and, and they don't, and, and they don't uh, really care that much about me. Uh, and it's also an issue of uh, even when uh, I don't see them doing it, I know that they're doing it somewhere else and then they're coming home and they're lying to me about it. Um, I'll just use chewing tobacco. Just for, that's my, that was my issue, it's not anymore. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Uh, but, uh, I had a friend, actually, who was in ministry who used to chew, and he was so addicted to it. And I asked him, well, what made you kick the habit? And he said, to be honest, uh, I had the early morning service, and I stepped up in the pulpit and realized I had a dip in my mouth. And he said at that point he knew that it was, it was over the edge. Now, we all gasp at that, right? Um, but that guy's sin is just a lot. It's just out there, right? It's out there. Huh? What did he do with it? He... Um, he swallowed it. 
Your sins will find you out. Um, so anyway, uh, let's get back. To, I know now I'm everybody's so distracted by my dip analogy. But, um, but let's say, you know, um, it is a disgusting habit and it's terrible. Uh, I mean, smoking is in the same boat. Uh, and it's, you know, you, you all, we all ought to really stop. Uh, but um, if it gets to a place, though, in a relationship where it may be an issue that the person is totally disregarding what the other, other person is asking them to do. Uh, but, uh, it may, uh, but sometimes in those situations, what will happen is that they'll fake it and they'll lie about it. So, have you been smoking? Have you been dipping? Have you been, oh, we've got to figure out another, let's just forget the dip, let's just stick with smoking. Uh, have you been doing that? And, and the person will lie or they'll smoke in secret or they'll go do those things in secret. And, um, Part of it, though, I think, is in the grand scheme of things, uh, is how it's dealt with um, in the front. Normally what will happen is someone will say, I'm going to deal with this person with grace. I'm going to deal with this person with grace. And so they, they do outwardly. Outwardly, they say, they don't say anything. They just sort of, uh, when they smell cigarette smoke, I'm just using this example, uh, nobody in our family smokes. Uh, when, or when, whatever it is, or... You know, if you are married to somebody who um, never empties the dishwasher, you know, they'll, they'll sit, let's stick with that one. Is that a better one? Yeah, no one empties the dishwasher. I'm just trying to make sure I get everybody in the room. Uh, yeah, ex, ex, let's use one that's a little closer to them. Yes, actually, let's use that one because I have a funny story that you don't even know about that I'll tell that I'll share with you. Um, let's say, you know, some, one spouse says, you know, I really want you to exercise. And look, if you see me running, uh, it's because somebody is chasing me. <laughs> and um, get out the way. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, you know, the, the person, one spouse doesn't say anything about it to the other spouse. And, and they just sort of hope upon hope that they'll start exercising. And even the spouse that, that is supposed to be exercising, knows they need to exercise, knows that they need to get in shape, know that they're out of shape, and that life would be so much better and they'd feel so much better if they would just exercise. They would, they would just do something. They don't do it. They don't do it. And so the person who wants the exercise to happen, the, the spouse who's getting, telling, the wife who's telling the husband, you should exercise a little bit more, uh, they think, you know, I have, um, I've not said anything and yet they are not exercising. I've exercised the gospel and grace long enough. It's time to bring in the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. Enter the law, right? And then questions like, hey, did you exercise today? Uh, hey, do you want to go to the gym? Uh, you know, you have a history of uh, young heart attacks in your family. Um, hey, let's look at some old pictures where you looked really good. Um, let's... Uh, you know, um, whatever, whatever the case may be. And, um, and the, now, here's problem one. Let's walk through this stuff by step. What they thought was grace was not grace at all. Gospel and law can never be intermingled because if you do that, what is it? What is it? It's the law. And so if you're trying to use the gospel as a tactic, like as a maneuver to try to get somebody to do someone, that's called manipulation. And... Um, and, and we can see it from a mile away. So the person who hasn't been exercising, every time they, they walk through the door and they come from home and it's been one more day, it's like that thing that says, well, today 
I didn't go to the gym again. That makes five years. Um, you know, when you walk into the room and, and you see that person and you know they're going to ask the question, even if they don't, you know that it's in their head. Like, working out is, the spirit of working out is pervading the place. And so even though nothing is being said, there's a whole lot of law going on. Right? So, um, sometimes, uh, that and in the grand scheme of things, the person who should be exercising really ought to be exercising, but it might be worth the person who really wants the spouse to do something like exercising to think, is this a plank spec issue? Right? Is this really, uh, is this an issue of a, a bigger sort of relational issue, or is this just an issue with me and I need to be okay with it? Right? And, that, and, and when you get to that point, and when you stop caring whether or not the person goes to the gym, that's actually when the gospel enters in. And sometimes they will end up going to the gym. Um, now, on the other hand, if you are able, after you say, well, this holding back isn't doing anything for me, I'm really going to let them have it, and they start getting on your case, and you say, look, I'm going to go to the gym just to get you off my case. Um, let me tell you, anger is a powerful motivator. And uh, there have been many a times where I've been on the treadmill and just so angry. You know, these people who run and, I mean, and talk at the same time, like if that ha- I would punch somebody in the face. Like, I mean, that is just, I can't do that. I can't do it because if I'm out, there's something about running that makes me angry. And, and resentful. It's stupid and it's silly and that's my own sin in my life. I know that. Maybe I should lie down on that couch. Uh, and, uh, and it's totally silly. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that sometimes we can, be, we can think that we're operating under gospel principles, uh, but really it's the law. Really it's the law. And then on the other hand, though, is that sometimes that passivity not in the gym situation, but in a situation where you have a child who's really gone off the deep end or a spouse who's gone off the deep end, simply by stepping back, that can be enablement in a negative sense. But that's, again, that's not the gospel. Us avoiding the issues is not the gospel. The gospel is a positive engagement in grabbing hold of somebody and saying, I'm going to love you and your unloveliness. And my love for you is not going to be contingent upon whether you get your life together, whether you go to the gym, all that, but the moment that your life is defined by performance, today this person will love me because I went to the gym just a little bit more than they normally do. Or I can call my mom today because I can finally tell her that I got a job at one of the five million Starbucks in Seattle. Right? Or today, I, I mean, that, that would be like Jesus telling the rich young man, you're fine. Or I'm just not going to say anything about it, and you can come and join us and be part of this and do what you need to do. Uh, and in fact, that would be enabling in the negative sense. But what the gospel actually does is it enables us in the positive, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit, that you find God breaking through. And I just want to close very quickly um, with um, a good illustration about uh, John Newton and William Cooper. Uh, William Cooper uh, and John Newton, you may know, great hymn writers of the church, uh, Amazing Grace, there's a fountain filled with blood. Um, glorious things of thee are spoken. Um, uh, God moves in a mysterious way. God works in a mysterious way. Wonderful hymns. And it was William and Cooper who got together to form what was called the Olney Hymnal. Newton was the rector of a church in Olney outside of London. And about halfway through the hymnal, William Cooper went insane. He actually went 
institutionally insane, and he had to be institutionalized. And John Newton thought, you know, this is what God wants me to... I thought that God wanted me to... Um, you know, I'm going to do this. For, I'm going to do. I'm, these bells are distracting me, so I'm going to pick it up next time because that means it's time for me to go. I'm sorry to cut it off there, but uh, part two, it's going to get even better. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray real quick. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you would uh, enter into our time as we leave this place in our worship, in our homes, and especially this day, Lord. Uh, God bless mothers and the grace that they show us, and Lord. Um, that you would send us on our way and love us in spite of ourselves and therefore uh, engender compassion in our hearts to love others. Amen. Amen. All right. Part two next week. <laughs>